From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serra. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker. Your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Brooks Agnew is standing by to discuss what can only be described as an historic adventure that has the potential to change, well, everything about what we think we know about our planet, about life on this planet. It's called the North Pole Inner Earth Expedition. It's taking place next August, and he's been talking about it for over a decade on this program, on my old TV show, and elsewhere. But now it looks like it's finally about to happen. My free monthly newsletter, The Inner Sanctum, will be published in just hours. So if you want to receive it, all you need to do is go to strangeplanet.ca and register. Just your name and email. It's fast and easy. And then starting this month, you'll start receiving The Inner Sanctum in your email inbox. And you'll also be automatically entered into the monthly draw for free Strange Planet gear, like T-shirts, hoodies, socks, and more. Register right now at strangeplanet.ca. According to legends going back more than a thousand years, our planet is hollow and is inhabited by a vast array of creatures, including highly evolved humanoids. My next guest is organizing an expedition to the North Pole aboard a Russian nuclear icebreaker sometime next summer in order to find the opening that leads to the Earth's interior. Brooks Agnew is a multi-patented engineer and a six-time Amazon best-selling author of nine books. Widely featured in numerous scientific documentaries, he's an internationally acclaimed lecturer on energy, manufacturing, and quality improvement while working with numerous Fortune 100 companies. He's been the host of X Squared Radio for more than 14 years and currently serves as the CEO of an electric truck manufacturing company in North Carolina. Brooks Agnew, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you, my friend? So good to be here, Richard. I'm doing great. It's been a while. What's been happening with you? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Well, I I slowed down from light speed just to do this program. (laughs) Well, thank you for that. Uh, It's been going uh, a lot. A lot's been going. Uh, Consulting business is going good. Webinar business is going good. We're on for uh, August of 2021 for the uh, Inner Earth Expedition we relaunched the website uh, right at the first of the year. We took on three more staff members, which is making work a lot easier on that project. And we just launched Hollow Earth TV. So it's all seems to be coming together now. Well, uh, let's talk about August 2021. And the original plan, if I'm remembering correctly, was you were going to raise money. You were going to rent a Russian nuclear icebreaker and take it up into the Arctic Ocean in search of this opening into the inner Earth. How is the August 21 inner Earth expedition different, or, or is it? It's a little different in that we're using a newer uh, ship. The Arctica-class ships have been uh, have been rebuilt. They, they just finished building the third new vessel. So these are new hulls, brand-new ships. Um, they carry 125 passengers. They have a crew of about 120. And, um, in fact, I just got done watching a, basically a home video that somebody shot as a tourist on one of those boats. And it was, it was quite impressive. Pretty well done for a, for a little home movie. We're going to do, uh, a dry run 
in June, we're going to Moscow and then we're going to St. Petersburg and then we're going on, on up to Murmansk and we're meeting with the ship company there. We're going to film the boats there. We're not going out to sea, but as I said, this is the dry run so that when we do uh, move all these scientists from their places around the world, from, from California to, to England, actually we have one coming from France. Uh, we know where we're meeting in Moscow and how we're getting to Murmansk and, and we know what that way we're not the blind leading the blind. So, uh, again, this is all uh, being paid for out of my pocket, but, um, next year, because we just launched Hollowworth TV, Next year, we now have the technology and the satellite access to live stream. So we are, we're offering three packages. One is just videos, which are exclusive to subscribers to Hollower TV. Webinars, which allows fans all around the world to interact with us as we do these live webinars. We'll do like round tables with, uh, myself and Brad Olson and Suzanne Ross and Doc Skinner and, uh, we'll talk over, uh, things with, uh, for instance, the shipping company and the brokerage house so people can ask all the questions that they want to ask. And as we go on, we'll have scientists from Stanford and Harvard and MIT and Cambridge on and they'll be able to ask questions of them and it'll be great value added for them. And, uh, that, so those subscriptions are how we will monetize and and pay for the ship because it's about four million dollars to pull this off, which means we need about a hundred thousand subscribers paying, you know, four or five bucks a month till we launch. All right. So for people listening who haven't been following this amazing saga, and you and I did a, a TV show, my late TV show. I guess going back about eight years ago, I think we did an episode. I met you down at that time in Mississippi yeah, talking about your expedition. For those who aren't familiar with it, just explain in very simple terms what you intend to do. Well, we have we've followed this legend everywhere for the last 10 years. We've been to Tibet and China and Antarctica. We've been to Japan and Mexico. And we've chased down Mount Shasta, I don't know how many times. We've chased down and interviewed just about every lead that we can interview, and we're down to the last thing, which is actually going above the Arctic Circle. We've got it narrowed down to about a 100-mile square. That's 10,000 square miles area where we think this uh, opening in the crust is. It's not what people think. It's not like a big hole that you can see from space that airplanes have to avoid and everything. We're pretty sure, based on all the other instrumental measurements that we have, that this is probably a fissure in the crust somewhere around 4,200 meters deep in the ocean. And this fissure connects an ocean on the inside of the crust to the ocean on the outside of the crust. And that we believe that there's not only seawater, but sea life moving back and forth between the two oceans. So this fissure that's at a depth of 4,200 meters below the surface of the ocean. That's right. How are you going to access that uh, from this icebreaker? Well, there are a couple ways. One is we have what's called a dart. Uh, we drop it from the boat. It goes all the way to the bottom. It 
embeds itself in the seafloor. Uh, a couple seconds later, the springs activate. It pops itself up. It inflates with nitrogen and floats back to the surface. It takes about three and a half hours for this to make a round trip. When it comes to the surface, we retrieve it, we pull the core, and we take that sample. That's one way. The other way is uh, far more expensive. We're talking with a company that has a submersible, not manned, it's remote, but it is tethered. That is to say it is an autonomous because there's no way to communicate with an autonomous one that's that's a rover. Uh, and it has to be slightly modified because this uh, submersible right now, it only goes down to uh, one kilometer. It doesn't go to four kilometers. So the tether has to be lengthened. It has to be strengthened. The sensors have to be upgraded to be able to take the pressure. We will be able to get high-definition photography. It has an arm on it so we can take samples on the bottom. Uh, but in order to bring this submersible, the company that makes it wants an additional $5 million. So chances are we're not going to take that submersible unless we're wildly successful with the uh, subscriptions. So if you send this dart down there and you do a, some sort of a core sample and it comes back up, what's it going to show you? What's it going to tell you? Well, what we will have is, of course, sediment off the bottom. And in that sediment is going to be not only minerals, but also uh, plankton and fossils and things like that, that will probably have a mix of the two life forms, not the life forms in our ocean and the life forms in that ocean. Plus, we'll be able to take seawater samples, which will most assuredly be different since the inner ocean is not exposed to sunlight. Uh, it's going to have different salinity, different crystallinity, different plankton in it. And this is, as I said, just a data gathering trip. And we have a hypothesis. We think this fissure's there. And if we... If we all six or seven universities are taking their instruments with us, if we come back empty-handed, then we have not, you know, disproven the hypothesis. If we come back um, that uh, we know for sure there's no fissure there, then then we have basically confirmed that there is no opening. But hopefully, what will happen? Because we we think we've narrowed this down based on. Um, oceanographic samples that have been taken in, in the Gulf Stream, which goes right by this area, uh, that this is the source of the sea life. Somewhere in this 100 mile, uh, stretch of bottom, which is not traveled any other way except these icebreakers. No ships go this way. But we've had a couple of times since, uh, 2007 when this particular area of the Arctic circle is ice free it hasn't happened very often and both times that it has happened to a large extent we've had a massive uptick in ancient sea life being netted in in areas where it shouldn't be so we we think we've got it narrowed down to this area so in other words beneath the ocean floor is another ocean how does that prove that the earth is hollow ah since we last met, Washington University, which is in, in St. Louis, got a grant and they tasked their grad students to enter 
600,000 seismograms into a computer program that they wrote. And what this computer program was designed to do is take these 600,000 seismograms. These are, these are readouts from 600,000 different earthquakes and have, they've been recorded, but the data hasn't been analyzed. So once the data was put into the model, they were able to do because of the source of these quakes are all over the place. And so the, the effect is to kind of take a CAT scan of the earth. And so what has happened is they, they created an, an image of what the crust looks like. And what they conclusively determined is that about 900 miles underneath our ocean, there's another ocean. And the waves of that ocean, this is, this is an ocean the size of the Arctic Ocean. It's underneath the Atlantic Ocean. And they can see the waves of that ocean crashing on a shore inside the crest. Wow. You mentioned, you know, ancient sea life and so forth. And we're familiar with the coelacanth, this, this prehistoric fish that was caught in the Indian Ocean that was supposedly extinct you know, millions and millions of years ago, and other strange sea creatures and so forth that wash up on beaches and so forth. So is it in line with this theory that these creatures are coming up from this other ocean occasionally through this fissure, and that's why they're present in in our oceans occasionally, but they're very difficult to find? Technically speaking, it's not a theory yet. It's still a hypothesis, but but yes, and it goes beyond that because in – in 2008, when this particular area of the ocean opened up, there was a big calving event. A calving event is when a large piece of ice breaks loose and flows free and it opens up uh, an area. Uh, that summer in Malaysia, the NOAA funds a, a sampling where they go and sample rays like stingrays and manta rays. And the reason they do this is because rays in the ocean are very sensitive to environmental stress, kind of like tree frogs in the Amazon. If there's pollution or acid rain or, you know, you, they, you see a lot of mutations in these particular life forms. So normally they see 50 to 100 mutations when they take these samples. I think they do it every five years. They went in 2008, the summer of 2008, which is after this calving event, and they found 1,500 new species of rays. We're not talking mutations. We're talking new species, rays that we've never seen before. Big ones, small ones, uh, frilled sharks, dorsal uh, squids. These These we've never seen before. The frilled shark has probably been extinct for a million and a half years. And this was a full adult blind frilled shark that they netted. It didn't live for very long after they brought it up, but it was alive. And they are pretty sure that these species are from that inner sea. And then they made their way into our ocean. They, they couldn't, they were so different. They couldn't even breed with the other species that were in our sea, and they ended up all dying of old age. I don't think they even managed to save any of them and continue to breed them, but we got all kinds of pictures of this stuff, and the report is just is just fascinating. These people were like, where the hell did all these species come from? And what we think is, it's part of the hypothesis that this inner sea, we know that it exists because we've remotely measured it, 
But the hypothesis is that this inner sea has actual sea life in it. And the way to prove that is to get to this vent and see if we can find fossils and microscopic evidence and even chemical evidence that that uh, that sea does in fact uh, exist and that it, it is blending with our ocean at this specific location. Brooks Agnew is uh, with us here on The Conspiracy Show, engineer, inventor, entrepreneur, author, lecturer, and uh, he's heading up the North Pole Inner Earth Expedition, and uh, hopefully in August of 2021, he and uh, a number of scientists will board this nuclear uh, icebreaker and head up to the Arctic Ocean to find this fissure at the bottom of our ocean, the Arctic Ocean, leading to this inner world. So if there is an inner ocean, does that mean likely that there are inner land masses and what else might inhabit this area? Yes, there are definitely land masses because we would not have picked up the waves crashing on the inner shore. Now, we we don't really know how big the waves were, but they had to be really something for the vibrations to go through 900 miles of of rock and, and magma to make its way to the surface and be picked up at all these different locations. Uh, so they're, they could be very high. They could be you know, like the area that we're sailing through has hundred foot seas. And, and I've actually seen film of the seas, uh, almost 200 feet actually cresting over the top of some of the North Sea oil rigs that are up there, which are about a uh, hundred yards off the water. So the the ocean's really really rough here because this this is just the you know Coriolis effect of the earth at this high latitude. The tides are enormous. Uh you know where we see maybe an a 6 or 8 foot tide in southern California up there you see like a 75 foot tide. It's a tremendous amount of water that's moving up and down. It's it's really really quite incredible the amount of energy that's that's stored in this water. And by the way, if you want to participate, if you want to learn more, we try to keep as much information as we can at the website. It's very simple. It's N-P-I-E-E, which stands for North Pole Inner Earth Expedition. And there are some free videos there that you can watch. There's a free newsletter that you could be part of, and we'll send one of those out a month. And uh, then, like I said, there's some paid content that starts, I think, at eight bucks. So it's it's virtually affordable for anybody. We're trying to make this so that our 40 million fans that are around the world that we've built up over the years can find us. And hopefully they're all listening to your radio program and they all rush there and sign up. Because if you do, we're going to make amazing things happen and you're going to be part of it. N-P-I-E-E dot is it com? Yes, dot com. N-P-I-E-E dot com. That stands for North Pole Inner Earth Expedition. N-P-I-E-E dot com. So, years ago, when we talked, you were talking about the idea that there may be a, a large opening, and perhaps you could take this nuclear icebreaker up there, find the opening, maybe even fly a helicopter through it. What new information did you get that changed that? There have been some more satellites put up. We still don't have satellite imagery of this particular area because it's usually shrouded in overcast conditions. It's very rarely in the sun. But we have enough information now from different angles, from these new satellites, X-ray and otherwise, we're, we're positive that there's no 
you know, hundred mile hole in the North region that, you know, everybody has to avoid or else they go down, you know, the toilet bowl. Uh, we're, we have enough evidence to now know that that's not the case. Uh, I spoke to two retired, one is a corpsman and the other one was an actual navigation colonel. And they both did polar cruises on nuclear powered subs. And they were in this area. Of course, the, like I said, the ocean's 40, 43, 4,400 meters deep. Not that subs can go that deep. They can go about a uh, thousand to 1200 feet on a normal cruise, but they sailed right through this area. So there's no hole or the shit, the subs would never have been able to go through there or they would have detected it. All right, we're going to take a time out when we come back. We'll talk about, in a little more detail, this inner earth theory, the hollow earth theory. It's been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. We'll talk about perhaps even Admiral Byrd, who uh, supposedly, according to a very controversial document, I guess his diary, in which he claimed that he found an opening into the inner earth down at the other end, the South Pole. We'll talk about that and much more. Brooks Agnew, my guest, the North Pole Inner Earth Expedition, back with more here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We're back with Brooks Agnew. He is leading an expedition into the inner earth, npiee.com, npiee.com. That stands for North Pole Inner Earth Expedition.com. If people sign up, they get the newsletter, but what else do they get? They get the stream live uh, as yeah. you're, as you're heading up there? There, there are three different uh, products that they can sign up for. One is access to exclusive video. This is content that came from Antarctica because we, uh, Brad Olson just got done with that a tour last winter. And other content that we've taken around the world, Shasta, Tibet, uh, Mexico, uh, content you won't see anywhere. You won't see it on YouTube anywhere. We do it on our live presentations, but we want to reach a bigger audience. So we're making that available there. We'll keep adding content as the year goes on. The next one is the uh, one where you can access the webinars. We will have regular webinars, and these will start out with, of course, our staff, and then we will add university people, uh, crew, the, the actual ship people to it, so you can ask questions and really, um, you know, follow your curiosity. And then we will also have a live stream component. When we uh, Depart from uh, Murmansk. It's Murmansk is the way they pronounce it. Uh, we're going to be at sea for 12 days, 10 days pretty much on location. We just recently uh, gained access to one satellite that has that that we can stream to from that high latitude. It's not easy to do, but we can get reach one satellite. That satellite will then download to two locations, one in America, one in Europe, and they will ground distribute through the internet that way. So you'll, and we'll have four channels. We'll have 12 cameras running almost 24 hours a day, and we'll select four of those to stream. And if you want to get you a big pot of coffee and, and stay up for 10 days, 
you can stream it 24 hours a day for 10 days. It's going to be a reality program uh, off the meds. <laughs> uh, so a lot of it will record about 3,000 hours of video. So a lot of that will be available uh, after we do the post-production. But live stream, there's no reason in the world why uh, 100 or 200,000 people couldn't go with us and watch this as it happens without the seasickness. Now, let's talk about the theory of a, a hollow Earth. And I, I don't know how far back it goes. I know Sir Edmund Haley, we have the Haley's Comet, was named after him. And, and uh, he proposed that all planets uh, form as, as hollow spheres. Does it go back further than that, or do I have that right? Um, that's the furthest, uh, official, like scientific one, Sir Edmund Halley, uh, uh proposed. And then, um, a gardener, a Marshall Gardener patented it in 1965. And then, uh, of course you have the two, uh, bird, uh, ventures. One was in 1926 when he flew over the North Pole. That was, uh, an amazing venture. I'll tell you, th- th- so close. This guy came so many times. They, they leased a boat called the Chantilly. They took a, a Fokker airplane apart, put it on the boat, sailed up to Spitsbergen, and they, there was no dock, just a beach. And like I said, the tides are very rough. This is 1926. There's, there's no modern facilities like we would think. They built a floating dock, and by hand, they unloaded that ship right over the waves, right onto the beach, and it's a good thing they got it unloaded because less than an hour later, the icebergs began coming into the bay, and they just got the Chantilly out in time. It would have been crushed. They rebuilt the airplane on the beach and waited for the snow to come, and they took the plane off, loaded with fuel, uh Admiral Byrd and an engineer, and Admiral Byrd is an expert at navigation with a with a sextant. I don't know if you've ever used one before, but they're hard enough on a boat, let alone an airplane. And he reported that he flew from Spitsbergen over the North Pole, made a U-turn, and flew all the way back. Now, the elapsed time of the trip was a little short by a couple of hours. And so the rumor, well, he claimed he had a tailwind going in both directions. I heard those stories when I was a kid about my grandparents, you know, walking uphill in the snow both ways to school. But, uh, I, I don't know. And, and they didn't then either, but who could argue with him except that the next time it was done was a couple of years later, another um, adventurer flew the same route, only he made it to the North Pole, documented it, and he took two hours longer to do it. So we're not exactly sure if Admiral Byrd actually flew over the North Pole, but he did report that he flew over lush green areas where none should have been. And a lot of people claimed he got off course and different things, and it's a big controversy. But it's enough of a controversy to to make people wonder about it all the way till now. And then in 1929, he flew over the South Pole. So he set both records, which makes him an aviation hero, but obviously there was no film. 
Right. So we, but he did it again in 47, didn't he, the South Pole? And isn't well, 47 was a different thing. That was uh, Operation High Jump, and that was in response to a report that a lot of the Nazi Navy, especially submarines, had escaped and were not destroyed and did not surrender properly, and they moved, had been moving supplies to, to the South Pole for years going all the way back to the to the early 40s and the Americans all battle hardened and you know ready to go they didn't want to fight the Nazis again so they went down there preemptively to to in a mop up operation and as the story goes they encountered forces that were more advanced and they got cut to pieces and sent home so uh Evidently, there were reports of flying saucers, shooting laser cannons, and as long as uh, the uh, PBYs and other aircraft, uh, of course, uh, uh, yeah, Corsairs took off and tried to do battle with them, they would shoot back. But as soon as the Americans quit shooting, then the flying saucers would stop shooting. And uh, evidently, the report is that they they licked their wounds, headed back to Argentina, and uh, buried the operation. Uh, in the annals of black history. Right, and th- that gets wrapped up with this whole legend that the Nazis had a base down there. Uh, they were cooperating with some alien race, and uh, they were utilizing their UFO uh, technology. And in fact, you mentioned uh, Brad Olson, who's going to be part of your expedition, and, and, and Brad just returned from the Antarctic a few months ago. I had him on coast when he got back. He he was there in search of, he calls it the Illuminati playground, in search of a huge alien craft, allegedly, that's supposedly now emerging from the melting ice down in the Antarctic. Hitler believed the Earth was hollow, didn't he? I've heard rumors of that as well. And uh, I think, you know, there was, a, there, there was no reason to doubt it because uh, we didn't have a good theory of how the Earth was made. We had geologists who wrote textbooks and drew models of how we live on a molten ball floating through space and somehow we exist on uh, tectonic plates floating around on that molten ball. And, you know, we have a magnetosphere and we have a north and south pole and none of that seems to agree with it either, but they, they just kept you know, writing their own science books with uh, uh, pressure waves and shear waves and shadow waves. And every time they would make a measurement that conflicted with their uh, current picture of the way the planet is made, they just explained it away or or drew a dotted line around it. But uh, what we started to do is, and I did it reluctantly because I went to the same as cool everybody else did. I have all their textbooks too. Um, we, we did a cross disciplinary, uh, review. We took geology, oceanography, uh, astronomy, cosmology, motion of planets. And the more satellites we put up and the more information we gained, the more it started to put in doubt the classic way that we think planets form. And then when, of course, Pluto was discovered to be hollow, Everybody was going, well, I mean, if Pluto's hollow, what else is hollow? And there, you know, the rest is 
a legitimate hypothesis. And so what we're trying to do is gather enough evidence to prove the hypothesis false. And if we can't do it, then we can't do it. It doesn't mean that they're right. It just means we haven't collected enough evidence to disprove their original idea of how the Earth is made. All right, Brooks, we're going to take another quick time out. We'll come back and continue to discuss the North Pole Inner Earth Expedition. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Brooks Agnew stays with us. The North Pole Inner Earth Expedition. N-P-I-E-E dot com. N-P-I-E-E dot com. You can find more information there. Sign up for the newsletter and uh, find out how you can get involved. Even uh, live stream this a historical expedition in search of a, a passage into the inner earth. Let's talk a little bit about what else might be down there. And first of all, sort of paint me a picture of how this inner world, this inner earth might look. If there is life there, how would it exist outside of the ocean life? Mm. Well, now you're accessing the little boy in me. I mean, that if there is an ocean there that means it's not frozen and it's also not boiling you know like a big s- steam uh, cooker down there it means that it's it's in the range that can support life and i can tell you as a scientist if there's space there even if they are extremophores there will be life there it is interesting that when we look at the way our magnetosphere is formed we are pretty sure that it is a result of counter-rotating metallic bodies. We now know absolutely irrefutably that the core of the Earth is an iron-xenon crystal. We think it's about 12 to 1,300 miles in diameter based on its density at a little over 14 grams per cubic centimeter and that it's probably due to conservation of momentum rotating much faster than our crest which is exactly why we have the magnetosphere that we do. Other planets don't have magnetospheres. Mars does not. The moon doesn't. But Earth does. And if that's the case, with the crust being 900 miles thick and the core being 12 to 1,300 miles thick, that means there's about 1,000 miles of open space there that's full of air. And there's no telling what kind of life could be in there. And by the way, an iron crystal, iron xenon crystal would be white in, in brightness. Not like a fusion sun like we have, but iron light is the same kind of, uh, light that we get from, say, a grow lamp. So it's perfectly in the wavelength for photosynthesis. Ah, so that is the light source. That is the inner earth sun, really. That's correct. It's not a sun like ours. It's not a star, like a fusion star. It's not off-gassing. But at that temperature, 6,000 degrees C, uh, matrixed with xenon, which, by the way, uh, solves another big mystery that we've had for uh, forever and ever. Uh, there's a law in chemistry called uh, the law of partial pressures. Um, we would do a headspace analysis of, say, a Pepsi bottle. If you stuck a needle through the cap of the Pepsi bottle and you took a sample of the air above the liquid in the Pepsi bottle 
and you shot that sample onto a gas chromatograph, it would identify all the chemicals in that headspace. And that would be in proportion to all the chemicals that are in the liquid. That's called the law of partial pressures. But the xenon in our atmosphere that is present in our oceans is missing about 90% of it. It's not even close. And we've always wondered, where's all the xenon from our atmosphere? It should be there. And when we began doing spectrographic measurements of the core, we were getting a very sharp, clean iron signal, which means not much impurities, but it did have a little side hump on it. We were always wondering what that was. And so they built an experiment, which was called the Diamond Anvil Experiment. They took an industrial diamond about the size of a football, cut it in two, put each half on a hydraulic ram, and then in between the two pieces of diamond, they put a crucible. And then they filled that crucible full of iron uh, filings in the ground state, smashed the iron together between those anvils at pressures that we believe the core is is experiencing, and then shot a laser through the diamond to heat that sample up to 6,000 degrees C. And they didn't get the same signal. They got the iron, but the other part of the hump was not there until they matrixed it with xenon. And that's when the crystal formed, and that's when the wave shape matched exactly. So we know the core of, we know what it's made of. And then that experiment was duplicated by Carnegie Science. And Carnegie Science did a wonderful presentation. They documented everything and it was absolutely irrefutable. It was a validated experiment. We now know what the core of the earth is made of. All right. We'll take one final time out. Come back with Brooks Agnew. Seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Brooks, you mentioned uh, trips to Mount Shasta, Tibet. What do those trips have to do with the possibility of an interior uh, earth or an inner earth? Well, uh, we were chasing the legend, and uh, some of that legend was perpetrated, or should I say uh, carried forward, through a series of rumors that had to do with um, what we call channelers. Now, channelers are individuals who believe that they're in touch with uh, trans-dimensional beings that exist in the inner earth. Oh, they have names and they have cities and there's a whole lore that goes with it. So part of those rumors took us to Tibet. So we spent... Um, Almost 10 days on the Tibetan plateau, which is not a vacation, let me tell you. It starts at 11,000 feet and goes up from there. Uh, but we did discover that a core part of Tibetan Buddhism is this belief that there is an inner sun with a life force. They, they, they picture it as a yin and yang, but there's a, a life force inside the planet and that the planet actually has a symbiotic relationship with human and all animal life on the surface. And that when these are all in harmony, then you have this, this great bliss, this great power, this great uh, ability to, to 
perpetrate or perpetuate the species. And when it's not, then you have conflict and you have scarcity and you have calamities and cataclysms that kind of spank the human race. There's a lot of symbolism uh, in it, and we followed it from Lhasa all the way to Everest and all the way down into Nepal, and we captured most of this on film. And then Shasta had a very similar kind of culture, had uh, several people who have written good books. They've been very charismatic in their movement. And so we made several trips to Shasta. I just got back from there again this last spring and uh, spent time uh, chasing down these legends, going to different openings and meeting with different people and doing different meditations. And we have to be open-minded about this. We can't just poo-poo people because they're not scientists, because at the end of the day, a fact is a direct observation. What we're looking for is a way to validate the direct observation. We're looking for a leaf, a bone, a photograph, a sample, some kind of instrumental validation that these kinds of things exist. So far, we don't have that for these legends, but the story is just fascinating. And all the people we've talked to around the world are very passionate about it, and we can't deny it. So we're collecting the information. So the Tibetans talked about Shangri-La and Shambhala, um, I'm thinking about that old Three Dog Night song, Shambhala. Uh, uh, and and, and Native, Am- Native Americans have uh, legends about this. So are there other access points then into this inner earth besides this fissure that lies at the bottom of the Arctic Ocean? Yes, there's uh, another one uh, that's uh, reported. It's called Mammoth Cave. It's in Kentucky. Uh, we went there eight times. We explored every cave system. We met with the oldest people that had been working there for decades and decades. It was an extremely interesting and very well-developed facility, but the deepest point is 366 feet. That's a long way from finishing off the book Edidorfa, which allegedly is someone who walked into the inner earth from Mammoth Cave. And the... I'm not sure if it was the uh, the Hopi Indians. They had a legend about ant people or something. The, these these creatures that had come up from the inner earth. So, yeah. well, you- yeah, there are several legends about life coming out. Not too much about going in. Like the Popol Vuh uh, talks about these twin boys, which are basically the the beginning of their human race, and the life force that comes out of the earth. A lot of worship about. Uh, jaguar forces and dragon forces uh, that come out of the inner earth. And the Hopi, of course, have their legends and a lot of drawings, ancient cochinas and drawings about sort of like praying mantis-like people that uh, allegedly came from the inner earth and, and embar- well, um, shared advanced knowledge with them that helped them be a better people and more advanced. And... Uh- the idea, the, the legend that UFOs, we, we have many reports of these craft coming out of the ocean uh, that that might suggest that they've always been here and that perhaps they too are denizens of this inner earth. What do you think about that? Well, that's something we have a lot of independent evidence on. We now have radar, we have video, we have lots of pictures, some of it official from the government, some of it recently uh, released. So we know that these UFOs exist, 
But we know also that they're as present as they want to be. If they wanted to be more present, there's probably nothing we could do about it. But the the conclusion we draw is that they're all over the place. Every place we went from Japan to to uh, uh, Seattle to, let's see, Mexico City, there were all kinds of evidence that these ships of all kinds of different sizes and capabilities exist. But they're not always in the sky. They're somewhere. They're not parked somewhere on the ground. And uh, my friend uh, Dan Willis, who was a radio man in the Navy, uh, he received a distress call from a ship off the coast that a 60-foot silver disc had come up out of the water and then shot straight up into the sky and off into orbit or out of orbit. And, uh, you know, the rest is is com- actually a lot of it very validated data that these ships – may be able to withstand the pressures of our oceans. And one thing we know about our oceans is we don't know much about them. We know the sea lanes pretty well, but as far as the rest of the sea floor, which makes up four-sevenths of the planet, it's navigable, but we don't know anything about the ocean floor. We just we can see the ocean floor down to about 300 feet. We have a lot of side scan sonar of places like the Mediterranean, the, uh, the Devil's Triangle, some deep areas off the coast of Cuba, and that's it. We just don't know what the seafloor holds for us. And for all we know, there's a whole other civilization that lives in cities on the seafloor. So August of 2021, you're heading up there. Uh, how many scientists in tow on this uh, vessel? <clears throat> We are, uh, we're, we're going first this June, uh, on a dry run. And then next year in August, we're going to take 22 filmmakers with us, the, a lot of cameramen and people to keep up with digital data and directors to keep everything flowing. And then, uh, six universities and one, we may bring some people from Carnegie Science, which is not a university, but it's a, it's a, a non-profit and they have some very excellent people there and they're interested. And we're going to take two to three people from each one of these and their support staff. And so we intend on bringing 80 to 90 professional scientists, about 22 filmmakers and the rest will be staff. And we have 20 seats that we're leaving open. If, if this speaks to you and you feel like you need to be on this thing, there's a way for you to do it. There are 20 seats that are open. I was going to say there's a lot riding on this uh, expedition, but if you think about it, everything is riding on this expedition. If you prove this data that comes up from the the depths of the uh, the Arctic Ocean, if you prove that there is an inner Earth, we have to we have to write all our rewrite all our textbooks. We have to rethink everything about where we come from, who we are. Well, those are the writers. A lot of those grad students, they're going to be working on their PhDs, and there'll be a lot of PhDs written from the data gathered from this trip. N-P-I-E-E dot com, North Pole Inner Earth Expedition. People can uh, log on there and become part of history. Subscribe to the newsletter. Brooks, it sounds like you're finally going to do it. Well, you know me. You've known me for a lot of years, and I've done big projects, and I don't like leaving things undone. And this is just something that's been undone on my shelf for almost 10 years, 
and it's about time. We now have the technology, the ability to stream it. It's affordable. Uh, the ships are built. Uh, this is a good opportunity. The economy is strong enough to do it. We should be able to get this done. Fantastic. Exciting. Thank you so much. My pleasure. That's it for me. Back next week with Len Kasten, the author of Dark Fleet, The Secret Nazi Space Program, and The Battle for the Solar System. Until then, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the rooftops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.